Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today on the show, we have Mina Harris. She is the founder and CEO of the Phenomenal Women's Action Campaign, which you may know from the gray Phenomenal Women t-shirts. She's also the author of a brand new children's book called Kamala and Maya's Big Idea, based on true events from the childhood of her mother and aunt, Maya and Kamala Harris. We talk today about diversifying books for kids, community organizing, and we remind ourselves that we've got to make sure that we're doing something, whether it be big or small. You can find everything we discuss on today's episode in the link in the show notes. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our supporters over on Patreon, aka The Stacks Pack. Patreon is an easy way to help me make this show by committing to a small monthly contribution and earning perks like our virtual book club. It's easy and it has an outsized impact on my ability to make the stacks week in and week out. So with that being said, I just want to give a quick thank you to Katie Lore, Sherry Maple, Sarah Hibbard, Alyssa Fisher, Meredith and Katie, Danielle Kloster, Megan Clark, Marissa Eisengart, Nikki Brown, Stacey Chin, Michaela and Crystal Dunavant. Okay, now let's talk with Nina Harris. All right, you guys, I'm so excited. I'm here with Mina Harris. Mina, welcome to the Stacks. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you. I'm excited. We were just talking about how we haven't seen each other in forever. So it's amazing. I guess we're still not seeing each other, but to connect virtually after all these years. So thanks for having me. So for everyone who probably doesn't know, besides maybe like my brother who might possibly be listening, (laughs) Mina and I went to high school together. Um, So we're both Oakland girls, Bishop O'Dowd, Dragon alumni. You're the second Dragon alumni on the show and the other Dragon alumni, Jesse Bird, also a children's book author. No way. I have to check that out. I had no idea. Check her out. I had no idea. It's a he. Boy, Jesse. Oh, sorry, Jesse. But okay. it's okay. <laughs> like, but you should. He has a what, cold. What year was he? He's a year younger than me. So that's 05. Okay. And he has a whole like children's book company all focused on children of color and diverse voices. And it's not just his books that he writes, but he also, you know, it's like a publishing, a publishing house that he has. Wow. Um, Jesse B. Creative. I have to connect with him. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Anyways, welcome. Um, so we always start here in about 30 seconds or so. Tell us about your book, Kamala and Maya's Big Idea. It is about two sisters named Kamala and Maya. It's actually based on a true story from the childhood of my mom, Maya, and Aunt Kamala. And it's all about these two 
sisters who see a problem in their neighborhood or rather in their apartment complex um, and decide that they're going to go solve it. And they come up with this big idea and they figure out how to accomplish it. And it's all about, um, as I said, problem solving. It's about leaning on your community to get something done uh, that is for the betterment of your community. It's sort of these early lessons, right, in community organizing and community love. Um, it's also about, you know, two powerful, strong girl character bosses uh, who are leading the way and who are persevering in the face of people telling them no and adults telling them you're too small or you're too young or, you know, it can't be done and figuring it out and doing that by leaning on their bringing their community together to do something that ultimately is uh, beneficial to the community. So... Um, it's been really special from, you know, sort of a personal um, standpoint to get to share this story that was uh, something that I loved hearing growing up, um, not only with my own daughters, which is really what inspired it initially, but to share it with kids all over the world. Yeah. And it's such a great story. And I mean, I am obviously drawn to it because you wrote it. But also when I actually got to read it, I was like, wow, this is so great. The illustrations are beautiful. It's a, a two diverse, you know, two women of color or girls of color characters mm -hmm. leading the way, surrounded by a community of diverse faces. And I thought that that is, I always find that to be very powerful in children's books, because I know that that is not the norm. What compelled you to say, okay, now I'm going to tell the story of my mom and my aunt for kids. Well, exactly that, what you just said, which is one of the big reasons. I mean, there were several, but to build on what you just said, it was me becoming a new mom myself and, you know, reading the, the classics, um, good night moon and, and brown bear and, you know, um, the hungry caterpillar. And those are all, I think really important, you know, works of, of children's literature. And we've read all of them, but I also, found myself at a certain point wondering where the characters were that looked like my daughter, right? Or reflected um, what what my environment was growing up. And that lack of representation um, led us to, you know, sometimes color the skin of characters, of white yeah. characters in brown and, um, you know, changing the pronouns from he to she, you know, to they. And it just became more and more apparent to me, right, that we are still underrepresented. We meaning um, girl characters, strong girl characters, girls of color um, are still so underrepresented on bookshelves. And so that was a huge thing for me, right? Diversity in kids books. Mm -hmm. And then the other, as I was reading them as a new mom, um, one thing that I think is is interesting and that I feel grateful for is that my older one was born around the same time that you did see this sort of um, burst of of what you might call like feminist children's literature, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, rad women from A to Z, rebel girls, um, A for A is for activists was a big one that a lot of like my parent friends were gifting to each other. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of teaching social justice, but in particular, the, you know, rebel girl series was a huge thing. Um, and I, I it's, it still is. Um, but there also came a point where I felt like I was like reading my kids like lists of women in history, right? <laughs> yes. um, which is, again, not to diminish how important that is, of course, we are, you know, we focus on teaching them history and that matters so much. But I'm also just like, can we have relatable, like fictional, right, characters that they can like actually imagine themselves in those settings and see themselves in instead of, you know, basically talking about lists of like women who aren't even alive anymore, right? right. Um, and also who are framed in the context of like doing something heroic and groundbreaking and the first woman to do this. And again, that stuff is so important. Right. However, I also felt like, can we just have 
girls existing in the world the way that my kids do. Right. Right. Um, I was just going to say, and the way that little boys get to exist in these books, right? Like there's so many stories in children's books about little boys, you know, going to the store or little boys having a bad day or little boys playing with their brother. And it's like, if you're a little girl, the book is either you are, you know, Marie Curie or you're, you don't exist because you've been portrayed as a dragon instead. Like there's no, there's no just like every day. Right. Exactly. It's not just sort of like existing. One of my friends, I I found this to be a great way to put it, which was um, she had like messaged me about my book and said, thank you for just, you know, putting these regular relatable characters into the world. Her son is half Chinese and she um, said likewise that she just wants a book that has a, you know, Chinese character, main character. That's not about like Chinese new year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like this is just sort of relatable existing in the world without it having to be like an aggressively, like, you know, in your face book about diversity or culture. Right. right. And I, again, I think we're seeing this in lots of different places in terms of the progress we're making, including, you know, in Hollywood, why can't James Bond be a black man or a black woman for that matter. Right. right? Yeah. So likewise, I, I felt like, um, and to your point, yeah, the default is a white boy. Uh, Marley Diaz, the young, you know, book education activist mm-hmm. says like, they just want me to read about a white boy and his dog. And it's true. Even um, in, in the progress that we have made, if you look at, you know, uh, there, there is a lot more diversity. If there's like a group of children, right, there's, there's, you're, you're likely going to find like a black kid, but they're also the supporting character. They are not usually the main character. Right. Um, so, you know, that stuff, it just became, I was sort of on my own um, journey as well. And, and kind of noticing this along the way I hadn't, before I had kids really, really like dug into this issue. It's not surprising to me. Right. I mean, I think the publishing industry, like every industry, um, likely, you know, can, can use more diverse voices, but Mm. it became more and more frustrating for me as a parent. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go to write this shit myself. (laughs) So that was the the diversity in, in children's literature was like one huge thing. And then the other that it coincided with was, you know, coming out of the election, many of the same reasons, you know, why I decided to launch Phenomenal, which was, you know, we were seeing this incredible moment, which now has, you know, lasted much longer than a moment, I think, and I hope lasts much longer um, than this administration. But, you know, it's people speaking up and um, women, right, through my brand coming together saying, how can I do more? How can I be more civically engaged? You know, what does it mean to be an activist? How do I, um, you know, get more involved? And I've been having these conversations with women for the last three years, um, you know, let alone with adult women, let alone thinking about how do we talk to our kids about this stuff? How do we really, you know, build build households and, 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 and build up children in this sort of way. And that of course was how I was raised. And so the more and more I was engaging with that, I also came to have such a a deep appreciation for in many ways, what a unique, you know, household I grew up in where, where this was sort of just all around me all all the time. Mm. And then thinking about, you know, how do I, how do one emulate that seeing what my grandmother did, what my mother did, what my aunt did for me and how impactful that was, informative it was for me. How do I pass it on to my own kids? Right. Um, I appreciate that in, in, in many ways it was, it was not only intentional, but some of it was also driven by like circumstance and necessity, right. To sort of be around the work constantly. I had a, you know, single mom, basically single grandma. So just sort of around us all the time. And, Um, I think often about, you know, how do I give that to my daughters, even though, you know, we're in a different situation where we have a lot of support and as a two parent household and all that. Um, And then also just 
cherishing those stories, right? right. And cherishing um, those values and lessons and thinking about how do I, how do I pass that on to them? And what an extraordinary way um, it could be to do that through a children's book, not only for them, but for, for everyone, right. And to really use this um, to, to have those conversations. And so in that way, it's, I, I, I think of it as not just for children. I think that it really can be something that um, can guide, you know, parents and how they think about, you know, how we raise our kids um, in this sort of new era. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think one of the major lessons in the book is that it's a it's a line in the book, but I also think it's probably if I was going to say this is the thesis of the book, right? If you do that with children's mm-hmm. books, which I don't think you do. But if you do, I would say it's something along the lines of no one can do everything, but everyone could do something. And I'm just curious, is that exactly. like a refrain from your own childhood? Is that something that you heard a lot growing up? Because it just is such a powerful, succinct line. It just felt like like it it was just, it really landed with me so i'm just curious if that's something that you've grown up with or if that's something you developed on your own recently or like kind of how that line came to you absolutely it was something that was constantly <laughs> reminded to me right. as a as a kid growing up in that household i mean right so everyone can do something was really the part that was re- a refrain in my household and yeah. another way of saying it is that you know um everyone has a role to play and mm. then further to that especially in my my household and the way i was raised it was that we have a responsibility right to play that role and to step up no matter how small um you may not be able to save the world but you can do something and you have to do something if you have any bit of privilege or access or you know voice like go do something and it was really important um, in my and sort of those lessons that I was taught, um, not only what was communicated to me in terms of those values, but it was also um, to me through action, you know, from the fact that, you know, my mom and aunt were, you know, public interest lawyers, right? They were they were doing that social justice work. But then even with my grandmother, who wasn't um, you know, she wasn't an elected official. She wasn't somebody who sort of had, um, you know, um, so any kind of celebrity about her, um, which is going about her life. But, you know, when we were at the grocery store taught me that we were boycotting, um, grapes and that we weren't buying grapes because, um, Cesar Chavez was fasting, right. Um, to call attention to the plight of farm workers and families and and their families and, um, and, and he, those sorts of lessons at the grocery store. Right. Right. Um, and, and other instances of her just showing everyday, you know, everyday ways of showing up with your activism. And so that's very much what the lesson is. And it's something that I think, again, when you ask, like, is it something that I came up recently? It's definitely something that I've been building on through phenomenal, which is that it's something that I talk to adults about all the time, right? right? Like, it can feel overwhelming. There's just so much happening in the world. There's so much suffering. I mean, even especially right now during this um, pandemic, right? Um, but where and where do you start, right? How do you really have an impact? And my answer is that you have to start somewhere. You have to take that first step. You have to commit to, you know, an issue and go for it, um, no matter how small. And for me, you know, with Phenomenal Woman, it was like putting a slogan, you know, putting an inspiring phrase on a T-shirt. I didn't know where that was going to go, it, right. but it, it felt right and it felt good in that moment. And frankly, the same thing with the kids book. I never had on my like bunk list or, you know, my aspirations to be an author, um, certainly not a, a children's book author. This was not something that like I had planned to do. It was very much responding in the moment and saying, you know, I'm not sort of seeing what I want to see for my, you know, what I'm in terms of what I'm reading to my children. And I'm going to go try to write it myself. Right. And see where it goes. Right. So 
since it wasn't something that was on your bucket list or something that you thought that you would do, what's the experience been like? Have you enjoyed it? Do you think you'll do it again? Would you consider writing for adults? Like it's something that so many people, you know, have so many questions about. So I'm curious as a person who's kind of an outsider to the book world, what it was like for you. Oh man, (laughs) that's a hard (laughs) question to ask me right now. I'm sure because you're in the thick of it. Exactly. Like there's layers to it, right? I think the first layer of what was in, what inspired me to write it and the process of writing it and getting to work with an incredible illustrator and having a collaborative relationship with her in terms of the process. I mean, that was just extraordinary and amazing. It's the, it's the sort of beginnings of, you know, coming up with this concept and this story and, and bringing it to life. That is the most, um, I mean, gratifying, incredible experience. Uh, so that's like the first piece of it. Right. The second is, you know, like actually getting the book into the world and, and dealing with, you know, publishing and distribution and like selling the book. And that second half, it, I have lots of thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still um, learning the industry, but it is hard. It is yeah. hard to sell books. It is even harder to sell books during a pandemic. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm curious about it, though. And I think um, I definitely I certainly have interest in and building on this experience and doing more. But I think I will need to, like, just give myself that space to, like, step back and and really think about all of my learnings. Um, And in part, I I look at it in the context of what I've done with Phenomenal, right, which is um, what I think at its core is about storytelling and messaging and um, you know, distilling, um, I think, you know, compelling, um, stories into accessible content that you can then, you know, distribute to mass audiences is I think what it is at its core. And that's what this book is as well. Um, but yeah, the whole process of selling a book. Um, so when you (laughs) ask me like, am I going to do it again? I'm like, Oh, I'm so exhausted. Um, let me just get through this one. But, you know, I think, uh, as I said, I mean, it's an old industry and I, I, it's very interesting to see, um, how it operates and to think uh, as an entrepreneur as I am, you know, ways in which it can be improved or, you know, innovated upon and I'm still learning. Right. So I'll have to report back. Um, right. But I will say I'm very intrigued by it. I'm curious about it. And I, I'm definitely committed to doing more. Um, and I, I, what I have seen so far is, um, you know, on the topic, back to the topic of diversity, we are seeing progress, right? We are seeing that um, more voices are getting access and are um, uh, are, are able to tell their stories. Um, I think we're seeing, you know, just uh, it's slow progress, but we're we're seeing progress. And um, what else? I think you know, there's there's also shifts in the marketplace in terms of um, the ability to publish independently, right? Mm-hmm. That I think um, creates some interesting new dynamics. But anyway, I'm not an expert yet. <laughs> uh, but I definitely am intrigued by it and, and want to learn more and, and, and committed to, you know, sticking with it and doing more. Yeah. Well, we should talk offline about that because I have many thoughts about the publishing industry, which I was I definitely an outsider to. until now that yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm a weirdly insidery consumer because I don't write and that's like not I, me at all, but I consume a ton of books and I deal a lot with publishers mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, I'm, tangentially connected to the industry. And I, we should definitely chat more about the diversity aspect because I think like a lot of things like Hollywood, you were mentioning, there is an mm-hmm. outward show of diversity that isn't necessarily reflected 
in the ranks of who's making the books and who's the gate who's gatekeeping so exactly exactly it's interesting at least for me from what what i can see in the reports that i've been able to get access to so yep no it's exactly right in terms of who's making decisions who's right like actually publishing these um works uh i was stunned i mean again i started paying way more attention um, as I became a new mom and I was reading this to my reading books to my kids, but then also, especially as a new author. And, you know, when you talk about gatekeeping and what are, you know, these sort of institutions that give people, you know, credibility or validation or help them to sell their works, right? Um, like New York Times bestseller list or or whatever else, like they are predominantly white male authors and white male illustrators. Yeah. Uh, last I checked. And I was really, I was actually shocked by that, which maybe it's not surprising, right? Like I said, at the beginning, every institution suffers from this issue. Uh, but I don't know. I just, I was, I did not expect that. Um, and yeah, we have a lot more uh, work to do. And I think part of it too, is just like, I, and I, maybe this pandemic will force that right. In terms of how we conceive of um, distribution and, and getting these into the hands of readers Um, right. And anyway, it's a, it's a huge separate topic that I've become super fascinated by and, um, and and very curious about. So I'd love to talk about it more. Yeah, definitely. Um, I do, I am, I, we brought this up. You've mentioned it a few times, but I do want to talk about Ana Ramirez Gonzalez, who's your illustrator. Mm -hmm. I want to know how you connected with her, how you decided to use her and how you guys work together, what the process was like as far as deciding what got illustrations and how they looked and that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, I mean, that was actually one sort of peculiar um, feature of this process that was was new to me and surprising to me in terms of what I expected, having never done this before going into it. So and you probably already know this, but um, you as an author don't have a lot of uh, choice in who your illustrator is. I don't know that. um, That's interesting. I didn't know that. And I mean, this may vary. I've heard this uh, and I've heard other people talk about it on other podcasts. it may be particular to a publisher, right? I don't know if it's right. sort of across the industry. Um, but what I'll say is that, you know, I came up with this idea. I started, you know, mocking up illustrations on my own. I'm, I'm, I myself am a creative sort of artistic person. And so that was immediately where my mind went and was like starting to draw it out. Um, and then, you know, started the process of, of starting like drafting out um, the, the text but I immediately like went to Instagram and started looking at all of these illustrators. And I knew obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, I knew that I wanted to have a woman of color as the illustrator. And, you know, as a mom, as I said, of, of you know, uh, two little kids that I was reading books to, I had some sense of sort of who was out there in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, um, women of color illustrators. For example, I think the big one that a lot of people know now is Vashti um, right. Harrison. Harrison. Yeah, who... Um, has, you know, little leaders and, and hair love and has an, a, a, a lot of extraordinary work anyway. So I was like, oh my God, I want to go like, look at all the options I have. Right. And I'm like scrolling through Instagram and I, I literally still have a note on my phone of like black women, illustrators, Indian American <laughs> illustrators. Like I have a whole, you know, Latina illustrators. And then I talked to my publisher and it was basically like, you can choose from a list of, we're going to give you a list of like five for you to choose huh. from, which was really surprising to me. I didn't realize that that was how the you know process worked, at least for me. And that's not to say though, I mean, Anna really stood out for me um, for a number of reasons. One, she's a visual development um, artist for Pixar and worked on the film Coco, mm. which is a favorite of my kids. And literally, I mean, it's one of my favorite animated, so um, you know, recent animated movies of all time. I just, I love it so much from the culture to, I mean, her style with, 
you know, um, lots of florals, right. It's all yeah. about, um, day of the dead and, um, all the, the bright, um, flowers. And so anyway, her style, I mean, just really captured my attention quickly. Um, and as I said, I'm, I myself, am sort of a creative artistic person. So I had very strong opinions about that and sort of, you know, what I'm, what I'm drawn to. So it was really immediate for me. And as much as it was something that, you know, as I said, it was more so the publisher giving me, um, you know, a, a small, um, you know, list of options and my choosing from it. Um, I couldn't have asked for a better um, illustrator in Anna. And um, I'm so happy that I was able to discover her through my publisher because I may not have otherwise. She um, right. is is li- lives in Oakland, which is where I'm from, where we're from. Yeah. So that was also very special to me um, to have also um, a Latina. And our artist and illustrator was super important to me. So I I spoke to sort of the process and how that was um, to the extent you have authors, you know, or people who are interested in writing kids books who are interested in the process. But um, the outcome is is something that I'm um, grateful for and, and happy with. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
What was the hardest part for you writing this book and what of this book came sort of easily? Yeah, I was just talking about this. Uh, and it took me, it was interesting to kind of go back and think through the process. The, the easiest part for me was like mocking up what I was seeing and the visuals, mm. like turning page to page and here's what you see next. And then it goes to this scene, uh, which is funny. Cause I'm deaf. I'm like a left brain, right brain person. Okay. I, I can do both. Okay. <laughs> but what was funny is, um, it was definitely sort of the creative that was coming out. Whereas the most challenging part was the writing. Mm. Um, it just like was it, it everyone will tell you this. I mean, there's a a very specific way to write for kids. And I'm like, you know, I'm trained as a lawyer. I'm like pretty verbose. Like it's not, uh, you know, I've done some like contributing and writing outside of, you know, the legal field, but like, yeah, the writing, it was just totally different. And I had to basically like cut down, Hmm. um, a ton of text because I was just sort of just writing too much. Um, but what's interesting is the final product I think is much more true to my visuals and sort of how I imagined, you know, each, um, scene in terms of illustrations than it, than it was, or than it is to my, to the actual like draft text, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. That is Although interesting. not, not surprising knowing that I'm, I'm in terms of the creative process, much more of a sort of visual, uh, arts person. Right. So as far as your process goes for writing, you have like, a thousand and one jobs. You're a very busy person. How did you make time to write the book? How did you make time to, to sort out what this was going to be and, and do your storyboarding and do like, how did you find the space in your day to do that? You know, this actually kind of happens to me with other types of writing where I procrastinate for a really long time. (laughs) And then I sit down and I just like dump the whole thing out and I can bang it out in like, a day or, you know, depending on how long the thing is. And I've, I've noticed that over time, um, that, yeah, I think part of it is that I'm just like building it up in my head and I'm procrastinating and my body and my mind is telling me like, you're not ready to like, let it out yet. And you're sort of like marinating on it. So that's all to say that I literally sat down and I don't even know how, I think it was over the course of like a a weekend or something. Hmm. Um, and we just kind of like dumped the whole thing out, um, including the, as I said, mocking up the illustrations and then writing out the whole story. I think one unique, you know, aspect of this is that it is based on a true story. So I had a a sort of right, like core, uh, narrative, um, plot that I knew I was working from. And so it wasn't like completely from scratch, which I think probably helped like accelerate that or just make it more clear sort of around that in terms of telling the story. And where did you do, where did you do your writing? Do you have a specific like writing spot or are you one of those people who can work anywhere? Oh God, this is also like, (laughs) I'm still evolving on this. Um, (laughs) this is, so this is like perhaps a whole separate conversation, but We've been living in this house that we're in now for almost four years. Okay. And I work from home a lot. Um, I, you know, I have an office downtown, but it's a tech company. So we have the, you know, flexibility. Um, I did not get like a full fledged, like dedicated space and desk until the pandemic. And (laughs) it's, 
life-changing as anyone I'm sure like that writers will tell you other, you know, freelancers. Right. But I think part of it is I just hadn't like committed to like thinking about how to create that space for myself. And holy fuck, excuse my <laughs> language. It it's is, okay. it's such a game changer. So this is a very, sorry, long one. And I have like lots of opinions on that now, but I did not have it when I wrote this. And so I literally feel like I was hunched over on my like couch in our bedroom. Yeah. It was not at all like a dedicated author writer space by any means. Um, and so in that way, I think was like pretty messy um, in terms of the process. But, you know, I'm think I'm, obviously that's also where the editor and the publisher play a huge role, right. And right. helping you to refine that and to um, really package it in a way that uh, is going to be appealing to readers. And yeah. I, I, I definitely had help there and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I think next time around, you know, I may be able to put something together that's like a bit tighter or easier to work with. But right, right. Um, for me, it just felt like I was kind of just dumping all of my thoughts and, you know, uh, visuals like onto a Google Doc. Right. You'll be, you might be um, surprised to know that many, I talk to a lot of authors all the time and many of them don't have a dedicated writing space. A lot of them really like this question, the answers I get range from, I have one place that I write at all times to, I sometimes write in the backseat of my car. I pull out my computer and pull over on the side of the road and write if something comes to me to, I go to a hotel and I order dinner and I write in a hotel lobby. Like people have all sorts of different things. And I kind of thought like you, when I got started, that the answers would be the same, right? That people would constantly say this yeah. one thing. And and that's why the question is also kind of evolved from where do you write to like, do you write somewhere or can you write anywhere? Or what are you doing? Yeah. Because yeah. people Yeah, do. I would be yeah. so interested to study this like different personalities or, you know, creative, like creative minds, like right. how it may be different across um, different people. I think as I said, I'm much more of a creative minded person. And I think, I don't know, sometimes I think it's just like an excuse to be messy. (laughs) But I like that I I, kind of it'll be bottled up or I've been thinking about it sort of passively. And then I'll be in an Uber. And it'll hit me and I'm like, Oh, shit, I got to get out my iPhone notes and just like, jam through whatever's wanting to spill out of my brain. Yeah, totally. That happens to me all the time. And yeah, I'll like sort of, you know, or I'll be on like, the my Peloton and the thing in terms of my creative process, I've realized how important it is to like create that just white space. Mm. Um, those moments when I am like overbooked and I'm going from meeting to meeting to meeting and my brain is just sort of like overwhelmed and, um, it doesn't have that freedom. And I, I find that in those moments where I have created that stillness or spaciousness, then it just kind of like flows out. So I'll be, I'll like be trying to rush through my exercise. I'm like, Oh my God, I got to get my phone out before I forget like what this brilliant ideas or whatever came to me. Like I have to write it down somewhere. Anyway. Um, it's just so interesting to hear, um, different people's processes. And in the same way, I've realized that, um, depending on the type of writing, right. Um, I may need a quieter space right. or, um, I enjoy sitting in a coffee shop. I love sitting in coffee shops, but <sighs> I often, um, and, and, you know, just enjoying people being around me and being yes. outside. <laughs> I'm talking to like wistfully. I know like, that how, feels how like how the most impossible <laughs> thing now, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I think it's sort of just, um, I'm all over the place, which again, as I said, I think is just, uh, it's my excuse for being a disorganized, messy, creative. It's okay. We're all, we all have our, our shit. But it's you for me. I mean, as you know, like my journey, I'm not somebody, I'm sort of still coming into it. Right. right. Like I, 
if for that um, matter, I'm still like coming into being an entrepreneur. I haven't been doing this for like, right. it's always been in me, but um, I sort of was forcing myself on a different, like much more traditional path of, you know, law school and clerking and becoming a lawyer and then doing right. policy stuff when that's like probably not really who I am. <laughs> Yeah, we want to go real deep here, right? Wait, I do want to come back to that. But before we leave your writing setup, this question is my one of my most favorites, which is did you have or do you have any writing snacks or beverages that were your go to when you would sit down to write? Oh, that's a good question. I just love snacks. So I like to know. (laughs) No, I know. That's funny. You know, I think maybe I'm not a huge snacker. And Mm. let me be very clear that has nothing to do with me trying to like, be on a diet or like watch my food intake. I think, as I said, it's sort of like I sit down and I jam, right? you know? And if my, if I have like salt and vinegar chips on my fingers, like it's hard to tie it, it's distracting. And, uh, which is to say that like, if I'm snacking, I'm probably not typing on my computer. Right. So I think I've created a pretty good like separation. Maybe people are like, get a fucking napkin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I feel like it like slows down. I don't know. It feels like it interrupts the process or something, you sure, know? That's fair. So yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think I tend not to snack while I uh, am on my computer. I'm trying to think, I guess in, yeah, even when I'm like in a, at a tech company, like in the office where, you know, there's tons of snacks. So many snacks. Usually, yeah. I think usually I'll like go to the cafe and like eat some almonds, but I'm not like super like snacking throughout the day. But that was, to answer your question, that was my go-to when I was like working in an office. But I think that's, I just like, I'm not really good at keeping snacks. I don't know. This is, there's so many adjustments here (laughs) um, in life and entering from the office to my my home workspace, which is something that I've been interesting um, to sort of figure out, like what are my habits um, in this different, right? Um, space or what what do I sort of thrive on um, in trying to really figure that out? Anyway, at home, I don't snack as much. Okay, that's fair. Uh, lucky you, because all I do well, is snack. It's like I eat everything, but you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> to each his own. <laughs> More snacks for me. I feel like it's such a like process to like, I don't know, you know, again, at a tech company, it's like you have a million different options. Right. Whereas for me, it's like, okay, should I get the sweet potato chips? And then if I do, I eat the whole bag in right. one sitting. So they don't right. really become a, like a snack that I can regularly right. snack on. I don't, we had, we have goldfish, but again, I'll like eat them in one sitting or like with a bottle of wine. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I conclude it's like not a very good snacker unless somebody provides snacks to me in snack form, right. such as my tech company. Right, right. Okay. I want to go back to your, to your work outside of the book, because I think it would be crazy not to talk about the phenomenon woman action campaign. Um, I, I kind of know the origin story, um, but I guess you should probably tell the people at home who maybe aren't familiar with it. But um, the people at home, you've definitely seen the shirt if you've been following the podcast because I'm often wearing it in pictures. It's my yes. the gray shirt that says Phenomenal Woman is where it all started. But if you want to tell people a little bit about what that work and also about the Phenomenal Girl shirt. Yeah. So the gray phenomenal woman shirt is indeed where it all started. It was a very, very small idea, which, and now it's a big idea, right? Building on my, my book and everything that's uh, come from it. But, uh, it initially was a fundraising campaign to raise money for women's organizations, you know, coming out of the 2016 election. I think like a lot of people, I, um, came out of that thinking, you know, wow, what just happened and what can I do? How can I, 
be more involved? How can I, you know, speak up and do my part again, back to some of these, um, lessons that I hope I'm imparting through the book. And for me, it was, um, creating this t-shirt inspired by the poem phenomenal woman by Maya Angelou. Um, if you recall, the election was very focused on women. Mm -hmm. Um, we were going into the women's March. There were these big, you know, headlines, are women going to step up? Are women going to, you know, uh, do their part? And, uh, I was, you know, thinking a lot about that and, and, and what I could do in my own sort of space. And I had, May, I had a smaller t-shirt before that kind of took off in its own way that was focused on women entrepreneurs. And so I wasn't like new to the t-shirt game. I was able to quickly spin up this shirt and uh, we were selling them. We launched it on International Women's Day and we were supposed to sell the t-shirts through the month of March for Women's History Month to raise money for women's organizations. Again, if you remember back then, a lot of people were um, and continue to, which I think is the amazing um, moment that we're in, right? We're hosting um, personal fundraisers for the ACLU, for Planned Parenthood, right. right? And so we were we were doing that too. And uh, I expected to sell, you know, some, some modest amount of shirts and make a small um, impact in my own way. And we ended up selling 2,500 shirts on the first day, <laughs> which was totally unexpected. And it's, you know, the rest is history. I, I kept, you know, thinking about how can we keep building it? How can we reach how can we raise more money? Um, and it kept growing and growing. And so, you know, it started off with that one great. And I remember back then everyone was like, can you make a, you know, different color? Can you do pink for breast cancer awareness? Can you do this for that? And I was just like, I'm sorry. No, like <laughs> I have a, a day job. I have like, this is already, this is enough. It's, it's doing well. It's, you know, I'm doing my part. Um, and now here we are three and a half years later and we have like dozens of different styles and, you know, all kinds of different, um, campaigns and, and nonprofit partners, um, so, you know, I, I approached it as a community organizer, I approached it as an entrepreneur and, you know, thought, how can I use this thing, this platform, this tangible, you know, really small, but concrete thing, like a t-shirt, um, to reach people with, um, important messages around, you know, issues that affect, um, in particular underrepresented communities. And we started off, you know, focusing on women and particularly women of color, um, and our first sort of big issue was equal pay. And so we were doing big campaigns around, you know, black women's equal pay day, um, indigenous native women's equal pay day, um, Latin equal pay day. And then, you know, we just kept growing and growing. And most recently we, uh, did a campaign around farm workers for, um, you know, drawing attention to their working conditions and the need for greater protections. They're designated as essential workers, but historically, um, especially the federal government has not treated them as such. Right. Um, so raising awareness through phenomenal farm worker campaign. We uh, also did a campaign around the anti-Asian racism that we are seeing coming out of, um, you know, the pandemic early on. Um, well, actually a year ago, we launched a campaign called Phenomenally Asian. It was for Asian American Heritage Month, and we brought that back, right? And the whole idea too is how do you uh, take what can be a very serious, complex, um, and sort of not um, positive or fun issue, right? right. Such as racism or um, pay inequity, and use something uh, like the you know phenomenally Asian T-shirt or phenomenal woman T-shirt. Uh, to raise awareness around those issues, but to do it in a way that is still lifting up and celebrating in a positive way right. those communities. And I think that's what is really awesome about it. And not only does it, you know, allow folks to, you know, get sort of greater um, a, an audience around these issues that impact them that may otherwise have not been paying attention, but it's doing it in a way that's actually celebrating them and also lifting them up. Right. And for people who don't know, I will link to 
the phenomenal woman action campaign website in the show notes, of course. But the money goes like the money from purchasing these shirts goes to support these different organizations through these campaigns, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we've had at this point, I think like over a dozen different organizations um, and we've done different sort of formats. For the most part, it's we split them across all of our organizations that participate. Um, but we've also done specific campaigns for specific organizations. And, um, you know, we did, let's see, ph- a Phenomenal Mother that was in collaboration with Families Belong Together. It's all about raising awareness around family separation and family detention. And as I said, the positive aspect of it is we're celebrating those mothers who are coming, you know, to, to the United States risking everything to create a better life for their children and also celebrating all the incredible mothers in in the United States who are stepping up and saying, I have to do something about this and I have to, you know, figure out um, how I can be impactful around this issue because I can't sit by. Right. Um, So yeah, we have um, all kinds of different uh, campaigns and issues and and partners and it's still, still growing. Yeah. And then with, the book, you have the Phenomenal Girl campaign. Um, this episode will be out after the pre-order promotion you're running, but will they still be able to get their hands on the Phenomenal Girl shirts? So the pre-order campaign, which it will be over, but I'll explain it quickly because I think it's still going to be relevant in terms of supporting local bookstores, which is that we have 25 um, independent lo- local bookstore partners across the country. If you pre-order from one of those stores, you can get a Phenomenal Girl, free Phenomenal Girl t-shirt. Uh, we launched the pre-order campaign before the pandemic um, happened because we know how vital you know local bookstores are to right. our communities and wanted to support them. And of course, now that we're in the pandemic, we know um, how much more it matters, right? A lot of these businesses are, are just trying to stay afloat, and they've told us, um, you know, across all of our different partners that every online order makes a difference. Every pre-order makes a difference. So once the pre-order campaign ends, which will be, I guess, June 1st, the day before the book comes out, we will then um, launch uh, to be available to the public to buy the Phenomenal Girl t-shirt. So right now you can only get it as a pre-order gift. Um, And we're also going to be doing another special giveaway that supports local bookstores. Once the book is out, if you order during launch week, we'll have another cool thing. So look out for that. Awesome. That's awesome. Okay. I want to talk a a little bit about Mina, the personality, because you kind of have become this like online person, right? Like you were, God, I'm like, well, you have, don't you think or not? I don't know. Keep, ask your question. Well, my question is that you're, you, you are kind of a, a voice of women of color of a certain kind of age, right? This millennial, you know, group of which I consider myself to be part of, you've kind of become Mm -hmm. a voice from, from our generation that's speaking up on these issues and you're launching these campaigns and your social media has a presence and your t-shirts are seen everywhere. And like, there is some notoriety that comes with being Mina Harris, you know, niece to presidential candidate Kamala Harris. Like you are definitely someone that people are familiar with in some way or another, maybe not everybody, but like in certain circles, I guess is what I mean by that. And so my question is how do you balance being this presence and your own kind of mental health in this crazy social media landscape and with all the racism and the vitriol and the anti-womanness and all this stuff, like how do you kind of keep your wits about you and keep doing the work and not just say, you know what, I, I need a very long break for like six years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It's hard and, uh, exhausting. Um, 
I think I'll start by saying I'm grateful, right, to have um, access to, you know, getting to have a family member do something historic and to be a part of that. And I, in many ways, I feel super, super lucky um, to have this experience. But at the same time, um, as you've already noted, it comes along with a lot of other stuff. And to answer your question, I think the number one like value that I try to lead with, which is going to sound so freaking corny is <laughs> being authentic right? <laughs> and like being true to myself. Um, obviously I'm in a particular situation where I have to navigate like politics and having a family in politics. And there's a whole bunch of things that come along with that. Um, but you know, for better or for worse in terms of whether or not my mom likes to see me saying fuck on Twitter all the time or, you know, other, like, I just have to, I, I, for my own like sanity, I have to, I have to be able to be myself. Right. Um, and so that's like the number one thing for me. I think with that though, also comes, you know, you already mentioned like trolls and just people being evil online. And I deal with that a lot. Um, and I think when you are public, right. I'm, I am accessible. Right. Um, people can also, um, use that in a way to, uh, act out and, uh, feel sort of, um, I think I don't, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be careful in how I phrase this. <laughs> I guess I could put, I'll put it another way. I could choose to be not public, right. Right. I could choose to be totally private and to not be on social. And I think, um, and I know a lot of people who are in similar circumstances to me who choose that or have chosen that for, um, you know, particular moments in their life. Uh, I just, I don't know. I can't do that. I'm somebody who, um, you know, I, 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 I'm passionate about the work that I do and I, I do it, uh, separate and apart from right. My experience of being in this, uh, family and being associated with that stuff. And that's my passion. And I'm not gonna, um, it goes to the point of being authentic. Like I'm not gonna, um, do something that feels unnatural for me or is not sort of living out uh, my true self. Right. But with that comes, yeah, having to sort of juggle all the other, um, not so pleasant things. And to answer your question more directly, um, it, it varies day by day. Sometimes I decide that I do need to step away um, right. and sort of like log off for that day. Sometimes it means I ask myself, do I want to engage with this person? And sometimes I do. Um, and I like clap back at people. Maybe I'm like in a mood and I'm like, oh, you want to come <laughs> at me? Like, let's go. Um, right. And sometimes I text one of my best friends and I'm like, should I engage with this? And they're like, don't you fucking say anything back to that person? I'm like, all right, I won't do it. You know, it's just like, uh, and so I guess I'll say I'm, I also feel very lucky to have folks in my circle who Justin, who are incredibly supportive um, and who I can lean on in those moments where I'm just like, oh my God, I have to deal with this thing. And, you know, what should I do? Or I'm right. thinking about, you know, and so having that, I uh, have become even more just thankful for, you know, those friendships and to have that support um, because, you know, it is, it's kind of just nasty. Um, if I'm being honest, what right. what's happening. And I think when I put, put myself in the shoes of sort of everyday folks that are also dealing with this it makes me worried, right? I think um, I experience it in a much more extreme way, but I think everybody 
is worried about, you know, getting attacked online. Or I, I shouldn't even say I think, I know. There was a period where I was doing um, a bunch of speaking events and there was one week where I had received the same question on a panel like three times in one week, which was how do you deal with like online criticism hmm. and uh, trolls? And what it suggested to me was that like people were worried about this, right? And I'm sitting up there telling them to speak out and do, right? And, and use your voice. And I think a lot of people want to do that and they're thinking about more ways to engage, but they're also worried to put themselves out there. That's totally valid. Um, so anyway, I think I, I am concerned about, you know, what's hap- what's happening online and, uh, it's it, every day is, is different Yeah, I'm <laughs> in terms sure. of my own, like, and how I decide to like engage. Yeah, with I'm it. sure. I'm sure. I have to ask, I just, this is maybe more personally curious. What was it like being on being so intimately close to a presidential campaign. What's that like? Is it just wild? Like you're with your family and it's also like such a huge moment for the country. What was that experience like? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, my uh, experience with it, it wasn't like totally new. Right. I guess is like a weird way to phrase it, right? Like right. obviously one, she's running for other um, offices, higher office. And so I've had the experience of, you know, I, I've worked on a number of her campaigns, but attorney general and then U.S. Senate. And then as well, I've worked on other presidential campaigns. Right. And so I think for some people that may just be like a random family member and then their their family member decides to run for president, it's like, holy shit, what just right. happened? <laughs> right. um, it wasn't like told. And, and she's also one of my closest family members, of you know, course. so yeah. I, I forget sometimes that like not everybody has that like relationship with an aunt and she's like my only, it's like my mom's only sister. Anyway, so in that way, there was a lot of it that it, I feel like was kind of familiar in terms mm-hmm. of things that I've already experienced. But then back, you know, Bill, the, the last question you asked me, I mean, everything was intensified in terms sure. of um, all the stuff. And so I think it was constant, you know, inspiration. I was incredibly proud of her. It was extraordinary to see her on the world stage, like right. doing this. And my God, I mean, that was one of the most incredible, you know, things I've ever been able to have a front row seat to in my life. And it was mixed with like an incredible anxiety and yeah. like, you know, Um, just the, it's also scary to see a family member, um, uh, one of my closest family members, um, out there like that. So I don't know, it's, I almost feel like, uh, it's like being a, what is it? What's the term? Like a stage, stage mom or like a, is that the term? (laughs) (laughs) No, but like you're, you're like, stick the landing, like just, ah, get it done. And just like, you constant, uh, like things. (laughs) But anyway, um, so funny. I also, you know, I'm always, I, I think the most beautiful things about any, um, election, but in particular, you know, presidential elections is that it, it, if you do view it from the positive of it, like you get to connect with so many incredible people who fucking care and give a damn. And, um, you know, again, along with that comes a whole bunch of bullshit, but Um, if I'm going to draw out like what the really positive, amazing parts of it are, I mean, it's extraordinary. And it's why, um, I, I think it's a moment for anybody to have that experience, right? Like go out there, find, you know, a crew of people that are, are, are getting involved and go do something. Um, which is also to say, like, don't just be on Twitter. (laughs) There's like actual work that you can be doing and it's extremely, important. It's extremely impactful. Um, and you meet really awesome people along the way. Yeah, it's true. I've, you know, I worked on Barack Obama's campaign and that was a life-changing experience for me. And it got me involved in elections 
later down the road, like I've since volunteered on all the, you know, elections, presidential and um, off your elections, but that it is an amazing experience. So if you're feeling, if you're at home and you're feeling like, I don't know, I want to do something, it's super easy to do something. And it's like so rewarding and can be terrifying, but so rewarding. And yeah, as you said, I mean, I, some of my lifelong um, yeah. friends, best friends in the entire world, I worked with on the Obama campaign. I mean, it was, it was truly a life-changing experience. Yeah. Okay. I just have a few more questions for you about writing and the book and then we'll be done. But this question is always very important to me because I am a terrible speller. So what is a word that you can never spell correctly on the first try? My goodness. Oh, I know. Okay. Misogynist. Ooh. Okay. Good one. Good one. I can't spell that. I can't spell any of the words. Every time someone says a word, I'm like, ooh, that I can't spell that one either. Um, Okay. (laughs) Last little bit. Oh, so I have to know. I have to know. You have two daughters who are sisters, and then you have your mother and your aunt. What did the four of them think of the book? What was their response? It's like totally generational, (laughs) like big jump, but what was that like for you and for them? Yeah, I think for my mom and on, I think, you know, just it was is obviously special. Um, again, it was nothing that any of us ever talked about, like, oh, it'd be cool if you wrote a book one day about us. Like this was right. not, right. Um, I sort of just said, I think I'm gonna go write this book. What do you think? They're like, okay. Um, so they're very, you know, I think they're most of all, I think that they are proud of me. I think that they um, are proud that, you know, I have this idea and I, I, I went for it. Um, just the, in the way that my book encourages all of us to do. Um, I have not yet fully read it to my girls. Okay. I don't know what I'm waiting for. I feel <laughs> like it's just, I just feel like it's such a big moment. And I feel like I, I don't want to just like, I feel like I need to like, I don't know, maybe I'm being too much of like a, a social, um, media person where I'm like, I feel like I have to videotape it or I have to right. like, really document this moment, you know? Anyway. So I'm, I'm saving it up. I don't know for what I felt like maybe I should wait until like, launch day, which yeah. we're obviously inching closer and closer or like day of, but I feel like it's such a special moment and I have not yet figured out like how I want to do that. Um, okay. so I have not, I, I have to report back. Okay. Um, one of the funny things I've been thinking about though, is like, do I, they know that it's about grandma and auntie mm-hmm. and I'm like, do I change the names to calling the characters grandma and auntie? Because if these kids come away from me reading to the book to them with the real names and start calling grandma and auntie Kamala and Maya, like I'm getting banished from, <laughs> I'm getting disowned. Like that is not going to be okay. So, so I need funny. to figure out a strategy on that. Like, so what's interesting is, I mean, it's not um, hugely surprising, but my, my kids know that like my name is Mina and they know that daddy is, is Nick because he and I obviously call each other sometimes right. by uh, our first names. Um, and they know that Pop Pop's name is also Tony. So okay. that's that's the grandpa because they have heard me calling him Tony because I call him Tony. Right. However, they have never, ever, as far as I can remember, have ever heard me call like Grandma Maya or right. Auntie Kamala. And I actually, there I can't remember what was going on, but I remember I will call her Kamala, which she hates, by the way. Okay. Um, I kind of only started doing it th- in the presidential campaigns. I'm like, I'm a 35 year old grown woman. I cannot be referring to you as like auntie. Like right, that's just not, right, right, right. she hates it. Anyway, 
there was some brief moment where I, my older one was like, Kamala, who's that? And I was like, oh my God, she almost like figured out what was going on. Anyway, so they don't know their real names. And if okay. they do, like it's going down. Okay. <laughs> so I need to figure out how to read it. I love that <laughs> so much. Oh, yeah. These are all, these are my really big struggles I have to like deal with. Oh my gosh. Anyway, okay. So, I have one more question for you, but before I ask it, I just want to remind people at home um, that the book is called Kamala and Maya's Big Idea. It's by Mina Harris. You can get it wherever you get your books. There are 25 booksellers that um, Mina is partnered with. I will also link to it in the show notes and everything else we talked about today. And I will link to the Phenomenal Women Action Campaign. I will link to all the stuff. So it's all going to be there for you. Um, and if you like this episode or you like the podcast, please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. Okay, Mina, last question, and then we'll get out of here. For people who love your book, what are a handful or a, a couple of books that you think they might also like? They can be children's books. They can be books that you think are kind of in the same vein for adults. Just some things that you think might be exciting for people who read your book or read your book and think it's awesome. I love that question. Thank you. Um, I'm definitely um, such a big uh, supporter of other authors of color in particular and others who are just writing incredible books that um, I think in the same way are, are, are sending, you know, positive messages to all children around diversity, especially um, hair love is a big one uh, mm. that was big in our household. And part of that is just, you know, teaching our kids about hair care and um, different hair textures. And that one um, actually they just, the, um, author Matthew Cherry, who's also incredible, just won uh, an Oscar right. for the short. So love telling people about that one. If they haven't, it would be crazy if they hadn't yet heard of it, but hair love is a big one. Um, another sort of related uh, subject matter is bedtime bonnet by Nancy red, um, mm. which has been a big one. And I think I want to be clear that these books are much more specifically about black hair. But I also think that, um, as I do with my book, that it's important to read these books to non-Black children yes. um, to learn about our differences, right? And yes. um, how each of us has a different daily routine. And I just think that it's so important that other kids are exposed to this. So right. um, Bedtime Bonnet, Hair Love, um, Sophia Valdez, Future Prez. That's a big mm. um, Oh, is that part of that the Ada been... Twist scientist? Yes. Okay. Yes. We have that whole series. Love. Amara, my older one, was, you know, saying that she wanted to be a president when Auntie was running for president. Mm. Um, so that's a big one. Um, others, let's see, like Solway, I think I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. Oh, yes. By Lita. Um, Nyong'o is a big one. Um, the Proudest Blue um, by Ibtihaj um, Muhammad. That I, I'm, I'm naming ones that are um, more recent. Um, gosh, what else? Do you want more? No, that's um, so good. That's so great. Usually people are like, I don't know. Oh, no. I love okay, it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So no, that's great. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's part of the, you know, um, actually another really good one. Um, green is a chili pepper, which I Ooh, love. I don't know that um, one. It's all about teaching colors, but it's through um, culture and, and cooking. And I, I really love that one too. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could go on days, which is to say that, I mean, we, I'm, I'm actually quite proud to be, uh, or I think I can consider myself sort of part of this, I don't know, new, you know, class of authors of color that are putting this sort of children's literature into the world. Totally. Um, and there's been incredible progress made there in the last, uh, I'd say probably like three to five years. Um, and I, I hope that they all get the recognition that all the, the white guys do yeah, and that more and more people read these books. 
Yeah. And before we, I just want to echo what you said, because I think it's important that these books that are written um, with, you know, children of color in mind aren't just for children of color. Just because they're telling the stories of children of color doesn't mean that they're only for Latinx kids or Black kids or Asian kids, that these books are for all children, regardless of your own personal identity. Just like when we were kids, we read about James and the Giant Peach and nobody was like, no, this is only a story for white boys. So I just want to reiterate that point because I think it's a great way to learn about other people and other cultures. And it's also just what the world looks like. Yep. So with all of that being said, Mina, thank you so much for being here. It's really been great chatting with you. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting to like you. You're a podcaster now. You have this incredible. (laughs) We went to high school together and like who could have imagined this moment and you have this incredible um, podcast. So thank you so much for inviting me. I just love, love this. So I'm, I'm really appreciative. Thank you. And everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening today. And thank you to Mina for being our guest. Thank you also to Jacqueline Franciscone for helping us facilitate this interview. Don't forget the Stacks Book Club is reading Breathe by Imani Perry for our July 29th episode. And Kiese Lehman will be back as our guest to help us discuss. Find everything we talked about on today's episode in the link in the show notes. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and support the show, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>